Hello, Joe. <laughs> what the heck is that? I because I know the question I'm going to ask you, of course, and you do. our guest, and it is diabolical. Di- this is your most diabolical question. This yet. is yeah. I, we're going deep here. We're going diabolical, t- total nerdy. My question of is is about science fiction, which seems appropriate for our guest tonight. Okay, and um, I'm going to present you with the choice of only writing in one of three subgenres of science fiction. But there's a twist to this. Not only can you only write in the one subgenre, you only can consume that subgenre. So my favorite subgenre to yes. to write in and consume. And consume. And I'm going to give you a list to choose from to make this easier. Okay. <laughs> All right. So space <laughs> opera is one choice. Okay. Post-apocalyptic. Hmm. Or cyberpunk. Those are your choices. Do, 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 <laughs> do, do, do. And the trick here is you can only watch, read, or listen to one of these subgenres okay. as well. That's the only science fiction you get from now on till the end of your life. Yeah. Okay. I enjoy cyberpunk, but I can't write it. That's not my thing. The uh, space opera, I, I enjoy it. I think I can write it. Not as well as our guest, mind you, I expect. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think our guest could write us all these better than us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He can write us under the table. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go with uh, post-apocalyptic. Ooh, okay. I would, did not see that one coming. All right. Yeah, because I yeah love to read it. Got some favorite books and movies. And in it's that not going to depress you if no. that's all you get to read or watch is. Well, I'll tell you, and I don't want to keep our guests waiting too long, but just yeah. to. You know, like uh, my favorite movie of the of the last few years is uh, probably Fury Road, Mad Max. Oh, yeah, that's a great you know? movie. Isn't yep. that amazing? One of my favorite yep. books is, um, well, we talked about it with Mr. Bryn, uh, David Bryn's The Postman. Yeah, that is a great book. Apocalyptic, yeah. an old favorite. I believe it was uh, George Stewart, Earth Abides. I mean, mm. the list just goes on and on. My favorite game of the last probably 15 years is The Last of Us, oh. which they've turned into a TV series, but. It's such yeah. a great game, yeah. Yes. Okay. Now we'll ask you, and then we'll and then we'll ask our. Well, our guests. I'm just going to say space opera because I haven't done much space opera, so that's new ground for me in terms of a writer. And I think there's enough out there that I could, I could manage it. And I would be worried about getting depressed if all I could watch was post-apocalyptic fiction or <laughs> cyberpunk. They're both pretty depressing to me. Huh. Well, I'm just happy that it, that we're not there yet. Yeah, I know. It's, we're creeping in on it, though. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Okay. So uh, nobody wants to hear us uh, blather no. on. They want to hear our guest today. Robert J. Sawyer, welcome to Recreative. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Please, it's great uh, to have you. and thrilled. Yeah. So what about you? Did you have an answer for Mark's uh, question? Yes. I don't like the three categories. I love science fiction. (laughs) None of those three are my habitual metier for writing or for reading. Uh, yes. But that's not the game. Is uh, the game is to pick from those three. I'm going to pick post-apocalyptic, and yeah. here's why. Okay. I am a science fiction writer who is interested in characterization. Science fiction, I say, is a laboratory for thought experiments about the human condition that would be impossible, impractical, or uh, unethical to conduct in real life. Mm-hmm. Space opera is not about real human psychology. 
space opera, you know, uh, Star Wars when, uh, well, actually Empire Strikes Back, I guess it is, where Luke gets his cyborg hand and looks at it for two seconds and then goes running across the room. Now, cyborg hands <laughs> may be common in his world, but it's the first time he's ever gotten one. Hmm. And it's a hugely unbelievable moment. When uh, James Earl Jones intones, no, I am your father. Have you ever had a shocking revelation made to you in your entire life where your response to it was to scream, no, that can't be true. So there, you know, in space opera, it's about the adventure. It's about people who aren't humans, yeah. right? And the opera name applies yeah. to the fact that it's this histrionic, over-the-top, unbelievable characterization. That's why it's applied. It was originally applied, of course, to Western's horse opera and then moved over to space opera. But the opera part is that unbelievable, over-the-top, histrionic characterization. <laughs> For the mm, cyberpunk, yeah. the same thing you can have, certainly characterization in cyberpunk, but that second part of the name, the punk part, is a very specific, narrow part of the human behavioral spectrum. Uh, and I like to say, you know, William Gibson, who I admire, consider him a friend, great fellow Canadian science fiction writer, you know, he got everything wrong about the internet, uh, <laughs> most significantly that it would be controlled by a hacker underground of mirror-shaded uh, you know, uh, social malcontents. It's not. It's controlled by the most powerful and rich men. They're all men in the world, big corporations, and uh, a spirit of um, generosity, which is not part of cyberpunk. Uh, you'll remember some years ago that Time magazine named its person of the year, you, the internet creators who freely give of themselves to make a Wikipedia, to post a joke on Facebook, to write an amusing blog post, to upload their content, right? This is not the cyberpunk milieu. And I would go crazy if the only people I could write about were disaffected <laughs> youth, dissolute individuals who were on the wrong side of um, the, you know, Bill uses this term, William Gibson uses this term, consensus reality. What cyberpunk has is a consensus morality, which is orthogonal to my own. So I couldn't do that. So by a process hmm. of elimination, we <laughs> end up with post-apocalyptic. Uh, granted, and, and you raise a very valid point, Mark, about a steady diet of either reading or writing yeah. about the downfall of our civilization is... Uh, inherently depressing. But that said, within the context of the downfall, you can write about real human mm -hmm. interaction. And as it happens, my most recent project is my own, I think, first post-apocalyptic work. Yeah, you could stretch a couple of the others to make a case, but the downloaded is absolutely a post-apocalyptic novel and has some of the warmest, most human characters in it. Ironically, they are from that wrong side of the law that so characterizes mm -hmm. cyberpunk that I've ever written. So if I had to only read one, 
of those three choices that you kind of cruelly put on the table, Mark, you are your buffet is not one that I choose to dine it's, at. Uh, I would have to choose the post-apocalyptic. It's a feast of the devil. That's all it, it is. is. Yeah. But I, you know, I can imagine you like bringing broccoli and you know kale, and you've got like uh, cauliflower and. Have all you can eat buffet. Uh, thank you. I'm going to go hungry today. I will pass. Thank you very wow. much. Yes. So, why, Mark, did you limit it to those three? Well, because I knew that Rob didn't really write too much in I, any of those. And um, yeah, I answered, uh, what did I answer? I said space opera just because I've never written it. So, that, that appeals to me because there must be a way to do that with your kind of aesthetic, Rob. There's got to be a way that you can take that form and and get more out of it and 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 make the characters like i ah. i think of i we talked about this last week with our guest last week the expanse that's basically space opera but it is really good good space opera so i i think you could do it rob i believe you i believe you in know you. i mean part of the problem <laughs> is that it comes with a de facto milieu of outer yes. space Yes, right? outer space. And it has to be there. if you look at my oeuvre, I'm getting a lot of French words in here. I hope the yeah. Quebec language police <laughs> are listening. Consider my oeuvre. Very little of my work is actually off Earth. Most of it is near future or the present day uh, on Earth, usually Canada, very often Ontario, Canada. <laughs> and so the fact that, you know, in the public's consciousness, you say science fiction, they think space. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. There's a large swath of the genre that is that. It's a hard sell to get me to buy in to most space-based uh, science fiction. And because I'm a rationalist and I you know, believe in science, I have a particularly hard time when you're saying, okay, we're zipping around uh, the galaxy or, my God, multiple galaxies at faster than the speed of light. <laughs> By hand wavium, as we say in the game, right? We use this magical substance, hand wavium or unobtainium, uh, that allow or dilithium that yeah. allows us to do this, right? Or a, even worse, a mycelium network, oh, God, uh, mycelial yeah. network of oh. mushroom madness. <laughs> well, yeah, no, it, it's true what he's saying, and and the funny thing is, I just started uh, rewatching uh, Star Trek: The Original Series, which, which I've you know loved my whole life, but I'm watching it with a uh, with a critical eye. And I just watched uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before. And I've always thought of Star Trek as being classic science fiction, you know, with a, more of a nod to reality, certainly than Star Wars. But Where No Man Has Gone Before is basically sorcery. <laughs> you know, there's... It, it, it's interesting because, of course, it's it's the one where, it's, it's the first one with Kirk. The Enterprise oh, okay. tries yeah. to do the first right. ever, or the second ever, extragalactic expedition. The first one had been done 20 years previously by a starship called Valiant, and everybody on board had ended up killing themselves, but there were frantic requests of the library computer aboard their ship for information about ESP. Somehow the magical powers of passing through the barrier gave people on board ESP, and the lesson of the story is, with great power goes megalomania. And, um, right. yeah. you know, this it's interesting the, you mentioned that one. I have great fondness for that one. This As is the one with Sally Kellerman, right? Sally Kellerman and yeah. Gary Lockwood, yeah, right? Yeah, Who got because of yeah. that role cast oh, really? in 2001 as Space Odyssey. Oh. He had seen it. He was looking for, you know, the handsome, rugged American astronaut 
guy. So yeah, that directly led to that. Uh, in fact, I hmm. saw Gary um, Lockwood on a panel at uh, San Diego Comic-Con or Dragon Con. I can't remember which, a few years ago. Dragon Con. And uh, he goes, hi, I'm Gary Lockwood. You may remember me from guest starring in the pilot that sold Star Trek. Now, some of you pedants out there are saying, no, you were in the second pilot. And I said, that's right. Listen to my words. The first pilot was a failure. My pilot sold Star Trek. Absolutely true. And, you know, um, although I'm not um, a big uh, consumer of media tie-in fiction and have never written any, except for I wrote the series finale for the fan film series Star Trek Continues. Two parts, concluding Kirk's five-year voyage. And there were multiple writers, including others who were, like me, WGA, WGC members, submitting proposals, including Judy Burns, who had written The Tholian Web for the third season Ooh, of original Star Trek. Mm -hmm. They took my proposal over Judy's proposal, yay me, which was <laughs> a direct sequel to where no man has gone before, brings it full circle. Ah. So um, I have great mm. fondness for your, that. But as soon as, it's interesting because Star Trek was coming off in 1964 when the first pilot was made, 65 to second, then on air in 66. They were on the tail end of John W. Campbell's reign as editor of Astounding Stories, later renamed Analog. And fundamentally, analog or astounding, as previously was called, was the definer of what qualified as hard science fiction. Still to this day, it's the only science fiction magazine that only publishes hard, that is rigorously researched, plausible science fiction. Campbell got enormously interested in extrasensory perception, and he allowed mm. into science fiction telepathy, ESP, all this sort of thing, which we've deprecated since. Mm -hmm. He was enamored of the research being done at Duke University at the time that purported to show uh, that there were statistically significant effects in terms of being able to read the backs of playing cards, the exact things that uh, Elizabeth Daner, the character played by Sally Kellerman, cites there. It's a well-known fact that certain people have precognition and read backs of the playing cards and <laughs> so forth. Reading the back of the playing card is easy. It's actually reading the front when the back is facing you that's hard. Uh, mm. The back, it's a bicycle. Everybody can read those, right? But um, uh, Campbell bought into this. And so for a time, television, I mean, he was still the editor when Star Trek went on the air. Right. For a time, this magic, you're absolutely right to call it wizardry or sorcery yeah. or whatever the word was you used, um, Joe. Sorcery, uh, yeah. We would not allow it in science fiction today, but we did on the tail end of Campbell's reign. He had given it the imprimatur. You could publish it in analog, and therefore it was science fiction. That was good enough for Roddenberry. So we didn't yeah, see very yeah. much except for the Vulcan telepathy, which, remember, had to be done by touch. So you could almost yes. argue that you know, something, uh, neurotransmitters are passing through the blood, right? Or something, <laughs> except when he, of course, mind yeah. melds with Vija or mind melds with Nomad, but gen or the Horda. But generally speaking, there were very... Or through the plexiglass yeah. when he gives uh, Bones his Katra. Well, right? that's right. Yes, that's right. Remember. Yeah. Yeah. But the other thing I've noted is that there's several episodes in the beginning of Star Trek that deal with telepathy and telekinesis and that sort of thing. Charlie yes. X and, uh, and the original pilot. That's right. 
It's, and the problem yeah. is, as every science fiction writer will tell you, if you allow these sort of superpowers in and your guys only have plausible technology, they got a phaser communicator and a tricorder against God. Yeah. The, what happened mm -hmm. is in the sub, you know, Charlie X, Charlie Evans kind of was godlike. He'd been given godlike powers by the Thasians in that episode. Q absolutely even says to Picard in the final season of Picard, even gods have their favorites, Jean-Luc, referring to their relationship. <laughs> yeah. uh, Trelane, yeah. the squire of Gothos, although he was a bratty kid, used some technology. God, like, you have to rein this back or your characters yeah. simply become ineffectual bystanders in a fantasy universe. I think we're being a little bit unfair to the, the editors of the time because uh, at the time, the, this hadn't been disproven yet, right? This was still... Like the Russians were doing research on this. The we Russians were, absolutely it, were. That we had MK Ultra here in Montreal. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this was active research into the eighties. So it's a little bit unfair to go back and say, "Oh well, you know." So, yeah, absolutely. As I say, Campbell gave it its imprimatur. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his imprimatur. Uh, it's only subsequently it has been deprecated. You know, uh, Yuri oh, Geller absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Eric Von Daniken became rich. Von Daniken, who said when he was finally cornered, the Swiss hotelier, <laughs> yeah. uh, he said, you never actually visited the, well, I visited them by astral projection. That was good enough to do this <laughs> research. <laughs> right. You know, we, we found that the people who were claiming these powers, who were claiming they were real, were frauds. Now, I happen to uh, have friends who are professional magicians. Uh, they're not frauds at all. They they are illusionists. They use that term very advisedly. They're entertainers who know how to yeah. uh, fool you. And of course, they're part of their act is pretending they have psychic powers. But they were the first in the world, the most skeptical people, besides science fiction writers, were an enormously skeptical lot. You'll ever meet are magicians. Mm -hmm. There's, there's mm, no James doubt. Randy. Yeah, the Penn and Teller had yeah, their yeah. BS TV yeah. series, uh, you know, uh, was all about the fact that, come on, you know, we're in the business of fakery. We know when you're pulling our leg. <laughs> so let's let's stop for a second. And um, so we know who you are, and probably most of the people listening <laughs> know who you are as well. But one of the shticks of this podcast is we like to let the uh, the guests uh, introduce them themselves in, in their own words. So can you tell us who, who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Robert J. Sawyer. I'm a Canadian science fiction writer. My first novel came out in 1990. I've published 25 since then, or 25 in total, so 24 since then, working on my 26th. My most famous novel, it's an outlier, uh, was a Flash Forward, and it's an outlier because it was made into the ABC TV series of the same name, starring uh, Joseph Fiennes and John Cho. My other novels include uh, Calculating God, uh, which was my first national bestseller in Canada. And I'd like to, although I have various things I say, I'm a hard science fiction writer, but I also like to be a writer where uh, my greatest uh, goal is for somebody to read my latest book and say, I can't believe the guy who wrote, whichever one oh. of my previous books, also wrote this. So I can't believe mm. the guy who wrote uh, Rollback, which is a heart-rending story about a long married couple in their 80s one of the, they try to get rejuvenation only works for one of them very tender 
emotionally fraught story, also wrote Red Planet Blues, a hard-boiled detective novel on Mars, also wrote The Talking Dinosaurs, a farseer, fossil hunter, and foreigner, also wrote Starplex, which is the closest thing I've ever done to space opera, Yeah. also wrote courtroom drama, science fiction, a legal alien. I like to be a chameleon within the confines of, I believe, science fiction has to be plausible extrapolation from what we already know to what reasonably might be. That's the only commonality my work has. I have a question about that. Is that for yourself or is that showmanship? You know, I mean, I'm in the entertainment biz. Yeah. I have chosen uh, this particular way to feed myself and my family and my, uh, you know, have my lovely home and all of that. And you have to have a certain panache in <laughs> yes. what you're doing. So uh, absolutely. I mean, I've been very lucky. I have won more awards than just about anybody in the history of the science fiction and fantasy field. I mean, according to the Locus uh, database, I have indeed won more and been nominated for more. I've lost way more than I've won than anybody else in the history of the field, going right back to Mary Shelley and H.G. Wells, and including George R. R. Martin and Stephen King. So, uh, you know, uh, that comes from dazzling. And an individual book dazzles more when it is a break. Uh, I was just reading commentary on Sofia Vergara, who is now starring in the new limited series uh, Griselda about mm. the Colombian female drug lord, right? And people are saying, you know, she never, never won an Emmy for her terrific portrayal of Gloria on Modern Family. Other cast members did, not her, right? Because it was so easy for her to be that character with the extravagant, as she says herself, accent, uh, the gorgeous <laughs> good look. This is her. She's playing her or, you know, as Larry David does on Curb Your Enthusiasm, her to the 10th degree, but her yeah. in real life. Hmm. So now, as she's reached a certain middle age point, she wants serious respect as an actor. She's playing a not physically attractive, not likable, uh, despicable human being, right? That's going after the awards. She wants to dazzle. Well, there are writers who I think are every bit as good as and as ambitious as I am, if not better, maybe even better, uh, whose career doesn't show the variety. And I think if there's been anything that's propelled all those award wins, 67 or 8 uh, at this point for my science fiction writing, uh, and you know the only person in history to be named to the Order of Canada specifically for work in science fiction, the most recent uh, guest of honor at a World Science Fiction Convention with me and my friend Shishin Liu. We were a co-guest of honor at the most recent Worldcon. This is because of that showmanship reality. Whereas other writers who have been enormously good at what they do, if it's also got an enormous sameness, how does any one of those books stand out? I used to be, mm -hmm. he's passed away now. That's the only reason why it's in the past tense. Used to be very good friends with Peter Robinson, who is often called Canada's top mystery writer. And I'm lucky enough to be periodically termed Canada's top science fiction writer. But the difference was that my career was all these bizarrely different properties. And Peter's career was by and large chronicling the cases of Detective Inspector Alan Banks of the Yorkshire Constabulary. Mm -hmm. So every, any one of those books is a fine book. 
but not one of those books stands out as, oh, wow, Peter really stretched here. This one is really totally different than the last one. It is producing a reliable product that will sell in very high numbers to an audience that is going to be consistently there for it. Whereas I have sales figures, which, you know, to the regret of my publisher, will go up and down depending on what it happens to be that has struck my fancy. It may not be the best for consistent uh, audience building, but it is absolutely the best for dazzling people. I didn't know he could do that. I didn't know he could do this. And no doubt very satisfying. Enormously, enormously artistically satisfying. Yeah. So a funny story, well, funny to me anyway, I'm not sure I ever told you this. Maybe I did. You, you might recall we met working on the show Ideas at CBC Radio. I certainly recall. You had written a couple of books, but they hadn't been published at that point. And you were doing a couple of episodes for Ideas on science Great. fiction. Be and precise. I met you. This okay, was 1985. Yeah. I was doing them, and you're absolutely right. My first novel didn't come out until 1990. Yeah. And so I, I met you. I was like uh, relatively new at the CBC. and uh, You're relatively and new as a human is- being. At that point, 1985, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. Don't call it and, Mother uh, CBC for nothing, you know. <laughs> that's true. And, uh, and my plan was never to make a career at the CBC. It was uh, to be a writer. And when I met you, I remember thinking to myself, oh, this guy, he thinks he's going to be the next big you know, Canadian science fiction writer. No, no, I'm going to be the next big. And then I watched in, in shock and amazement as, no, you actually became, yeah, the, the Canadian, big Canadian science fiction writer. and uh, But it's been a, a pleasure to know you all those years and watch your meteoric ascent. And uh, and you stayed there, the staying power. It's I have been extraordinarily lucky. Uh, and there are a couple of factors that are utterly extraneous to me. I, the, one of the most fortunate things in my entire life was being born in Canada because all of us in Canada benefited from this. Uh, and Americans simply don't understand this. They talk about, oh, you in Canada, you have the Canada Council, you have arts councils, you have this. We have socialized medicine. Yeah, I could go full-time as a writer, and I did, at 23 years of age. That was the last time I got a, a paycheck from an employer that happened to be what is now called Toronto Metropolitan University and was at that time Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, where I had spent a year after graduation from the uh, Radio and Television Arts Program working as uh, what they called a studio lab assistant and instructor. Dem- you were a lobby. We were Absolutely. Both that yeah. last time I ever yeah. got a check, never had to worry once about medical expenses. I'm not going to go into my personal life here, but I would say that I know for a fact that in the last decade, uh, my the book value of, of things that I've received, courtesy of uh, the Ontario healthcare system, is well over a million dollars. And... Um, I never had to worry. And uh, I could worry about not being able to eat, worry about, you know, maybe not being able to make rent, but I never had to be shackled to a nine to five. And, you know, speaking right. of Canadians, of course, Malcolm Gladwell is the author of the book Outliers, right? right. And in Outliers, yeah. he talks about the magic number of hours you have to put, in. I think it's 20,000. Hours you have to put in 10, to become yeah. 10,000. And he's absolutely yeah. right. There's also what's called in the science fiction field, Bester's Limit, after Alfred Bester, who ironically wrote one of the most important novels about ESP in science fiction history, <laughs> to go back to where we were earlier. His limit was um, a million words. 
and it amounts to the same thing. Uh, Gladwell yeah. said you got to do 10,000 hours before you're going to be any good at, at expert at something. And Bester said you got to write a million words of garbage before you'll write mm. your first good word. And the only way to do that quickly is to do it full time. So yeah. by being in Canada and being able to be self-employed for now 41 years as a professional writer in this country and never having to worry about health insurance, that's what let me get that million words written. Now for me, I uh, mo when you met me, you're absolutely right. In 1985, I'd sold a couple of little tiny short stories but hadn't sold my novels. And I was making my living doing nonfiction writing. I did my million words of garbage, mostly for newspaper and magazine articles, press releases, brochures for all three levels, federal, provincial, municipal governments, and also writing radio documentary for the CBC and things like that. So I was able to do it quickly. And I look at my American colleagues who took 10, 15 years to get their million words or get their 10,000 hours in. And uh, I owe it so much of that to Tommy Douglas, the father of socialized medicine in Canada. This is deep CADCON. I love this. <laughs> I'm willing to bet that uh, many of those words were not, in fact, garbage. Well, you know, I, 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 I've always been good, right? Because you can't make a living if you're not at least good as a writer, right? So I was always good at what I did. And, but you know, that is, um, it sounds like braggadocio, but it is what pushes you in a direction, right? You know, uh, people say to me all the time, oh, you have a nice voice, isn't, you know, why don't you work in radio? I said, well, I did. I actually have a degree in broadcasting, right? <laughs> uh, you get pushed in that direction because of whatever, you know, uh, the good Lord of uh, completely random evolutionary chance and the DNA crapshoot between your two parents uh, gave you, you know, you become an athlete because you were born with a certain prowess, which you have to develop. You become a writer, a creative person, because you're born with these things that you may work on to develop. But, you know, the fact that I became a writer because I was good at being a writing, uh, good at being a writing, <laughs> because I talk <laughs> smart and write yeah, stuff. Real well, good, real good. <laughs> You know, I, I gravitate or you're streamed by external forces. That's right? true. Yeah. I would have loved to make a, I, I'm being facetious. I never would have, but I would have loved to make a living, you know, playing uh, professional hockey. I can't even skate. I'm not going to, I got enough a prayer of doing that. You have to, uh, you know, they say of diplomacy very much in the news these days, diplomacy of politics is the art of the possible. So it's just making any kind of living. It's not yeah. what you want to do. It's what you can do. Now, I have to get this out of the way. I tried desperately to put you on the radio. Yes, we tried repeatedly, multiple pilots. If the listeners haven't read Joe's book, they really should, because you you feature prominently in it, Rob, and it's a great story. I know. I gave Joe a blurb, and I was uh, delighted. What's great about the story is actually just like, it just shows how often it takes to try something before you finally break through. Absolutely. It is um, one of my greatest disappointments that we didn't yeah. make Me that too. happen. We did three great pilots for CBC Radio. Uh, for uh, yeah. what we're talking about here, uh, for the listener's benefit, is a show about science fiction. That would have some dramatization, radio drama composers, but it was a show about science fiction. It wasn't like we were trying to sell, you know, uh, they'd had you had Johnny Chase, Secret Agent of Space on CBC and other 
Yeah, That's right. Possibly yeah. less than <laughs> brilliant science fiction shows over the years. But yeah, we, we thought it was a natural. It didn't sell. And what you just said, Mark, is absolutely true. People say, oh, man, why aren't they making movies and TV shows for your books? I said, actually, they made one. They made it yeah. in 2009. Yeah. I made a ton of money off of it, and it disappeared. I mean, it's. I think it's streaming on and, Disney Plus, and that right still now. puts you in the top percentile, right? Oh, absolutely. But that's my point. Yeah, but yeah. I, I won the lottery once. You people yeah, are saying, yeah. "How come you haven't won the lottery five, six, ten, twenty <laughs> times?" The answer is because the Ontario Lottery Corporation has their goons come out and investigate you if you win too many times, <laughs> and they look for insider <laughs> dealing. Right? That's hilarious. Uh, I've had. Mm. I'm delighted. My friend Adel Van Belkum. In the last year, I've seen, you know, Edo, uh, Joe, in the last mm, year, I've yeah. seen him go from bitter, disgruntled former writer uh, <laughs> working as a, a police officer in Peel Region, a, a police um, services employee, to on the top of the world because Paramount Plus made a TV series adapting his decade old uh, Wolfpack series of novels to just this past week. Well, now it's Sunday. So just last week, uh, having his series canceled. You know, you go the highs and lows, but um, it is uh, delightful when it happens. But for so many writers, it never does. And, you know, when people say, why are your things being made to movies or TV shows? If I wanted to be working in film and television, that's what my degree is in, I'd be doing that. I'm working in books because that's what I want to work in. And only a fool writes books thinking that that is not the terminal form of their art, right? No painter says, "Eh, I made a great painting here, but you know what? I'm hoping they're going to make an animated screensaver out of it. (laughs) Uh, You know, no musician says, I got a great song here. I just can't wait Mm -hmm. until somebody uh, makes a movie of my song or whatever, you know? Your, Your art has a terminal form. If you're a potter, it's a pot. If you're a novelist, it's a novel. If you're a screenplay writer, it's a screenplay. The difference is you can't make a living as a novelist unless your novels get published. You, in fact, can make a a living as a screenwriter or a television writer without ever having a single thing produced. That's the beauty of a unionized profession. I was on strike with my brothers and sisters of the Writers Guild of America and we may very well, also Writers Guild of Canada, go on strike uh, as we face down the producers who want to replace us with AI. Or even if they don't replace us with AI, I say, oh, yeah, send in your script and it'll be evaluated by an AI before we even decide whether a human being will look at it. We're fighting against that. But in the, you know, I've made hundreds of thousands of dollars as a scriptwriter for things that have never been produced and never will be produced. And that is economically advantageous, but was soul destroying. I'm actually in a debate right now with people who are trying to develop Red Planet Blues, uh, my hard-boiled detective novel set on Mars, about, um, uh, you know, they would really like me to write a screenplay on spec, meaning without money up front. And of course, A, the, the unions won't allow that, Uh, unless I do it entirely separate from any uh, option agreement and just own it as my own spec screenplay. But it's, you know, no, like the chances of this getting made are so slim. Why would I spend weeks or months uh, doing this, you know, for for no uh, recompense up front? Yeah. I wrote a great screenplay for a Canadian production company 
uh, based on my novel Triggers. I thoroughly enjoyed doing that. Everybody was happy with the screenplay. Just never got made. And that's no failing on my part or on the producer's part. It's just the reality that, you know, you got a great, you got a script. Now you just need $100 million to make the film. And those $100 million, you know, yeah, that's uh, maybe that's for not Jeff Bezos, it's not much, but for most of the rest of the world, that's a hell of a lot of money that is not easy to come by. I, I think about Philip K. Dick, who had so many adaptations done of his work after his Yes. Death. Oh, I, my I, I have no children, <laughs> but I have four nieces who are counting. <laughs> Uncle Rob kicks off that he will be the new Philip K. Dick and they will live the high life for the, uh, you know, 70 years after my death that copyright in Canada. We just recently, you know, joined the international standard of 70 years. It used to be 50 years in Canada quite recently, which is why James Bond fell out of copyright in Canada and was still in copyright in Great Britain and the United States. That's because of the mouse. It's kind of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. But they've lost. I mean, now this year. Now, finally, the 70 years has passed. Yeah. But but that's right. But they (laughs) were certainly, you know, Disney owns ABC Studios. ABC Studios made Flash Forward. So as I said, you know, we were made on the Disney um, Disney campus in uh, Hollywood, in Burbank, you know, literally supposedly the happiest place on earth. I walked by the animation mm-hmm. studio every day on the way to work uh, and went to, you know, we had a, a lovely pavilion for our writer's room. Beautiful climates. So there, these are pavilions on the lawn. Disney. Wow. Next door was the pavilion for Lost, by the way. Their last season overlapped our oh, first cool. season. The point of all this is people say, how was it working with ABC? I was working with Disney. Everybody was wonderful, except the lawyers. Not only were they vicious, but they were mean-spiritedly vicious. Oh. And in fact, I'll tell you a little quick story about that, not to get too discursive here. But- my contract said we had the rights to use the flash forward logo from the TV series on the book. All they had to do was give us the files, the graphic files. And uh, the lawyers said, no, it's, it's in my contract. I'm entitled to this. And he said, no, you can't have it. I said, why not? He said, because I say so. And then he said, and don't even think about going over my head. This is definitive. And I thought, what a non Scrooge McDuck made, you know, made <laughs> yeah. look like a nice Disney character. And I thought, what the hell, I'm just going to call the vi- uh, vice president of Disney, uh, who was in charge of um, ultimately the top guy for the adaptation. Over his head. I called, and I, his secretary, of course, answered the phone, said, hello, my name is Robert J. Sawyer. I wrote uh, the novel uh, Flash Forward, basis for the TV series. And she said, I'll put you right through, Mr. Sawyer. Got the vice president, and he said, we love you. We love your book. What can we do for you? How are you doing? Nice to meet you, you know. And I said, well, you got an a-hole over in uh, the uh, legal building who won't let me have this. What? And he literally, you know, you could hear him calling to his assistant, get Mr. Sawyer whatever he needs. Right? We were down to 12 hours before the book, the tie-in edition, was scheduled to go on the offset presses to come out. Wow. Time for, at 12 hours. And... The capricious nastiness of Disney lawyers should never be underestimated. Wow. That's how they were oh, able yeah. to change Wait. copyright law and everything else to Disney's advantage because Walt Disney may have been a very nice man, but he knew to hire really unpleasant people for his Well, business. that's true. Wait. If you got to hire a lawyer, you got to hire a shark. 
So, okay, 43 minutes in, Mark, shall we oh, pose God. the question? Oh, God, is there any point? Okay, yeah, the question <laughs> is, what piece of art inspired you at some point in your career? Now, this is ironic that you ask this, Mark, because it is a post-apocalyptic awesome. fiction. Awesome. Uh, it fits. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So much of what uh, my writing, my career has been about is uh, riffing on or inspired at least by 1968's movie Planet of the Apes. Uh, oh, there are a whole bunch yeah. of resonances there. First, I am, if you look for my literary antecedents, I say, you know, H.G. Uh, Wells is my spiritual father. He was the father of writing science fiction as social commentary. Right. And that's what Planet of the Apes is. It's it's not a reasonable thing to think <laughs> that, you know, uh, the apes yeah. are going to take over. But as social commentary, it's absolutely brilliant. One of the aphorisms of my own that I cite repeatedly is that no science fiction work is about the year it's putatively set in. Rather, it is wholly and completely about the year in which it was composed. Yeah, Planet of the Apes, of course, came out in 1968. Right. It's based on a 1963 novel by... Uh, Pierre Boulle, uh, called Le Plan de Sange, a uh, French novel. He also wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. But uh, the 67, when the film was being made, the front page stories in every newspaper everywhere in the world were only two topics on a daily basis. The fear of nuclear war and race relations. Yeah. And that's 100% what Planet of the Apes is about. Uh, and it deals with them brilliantly. Sammy Davis Jr. went up to Frank Schaffner, who was the director of the film, went on to win an Oscar for directing Patton as his next feature was Patton. Franklin Schaffner. Yeah, I love that. Uh, after yeah. the film, Sammy Davis Jr. came up to the screen and said, you have made the most trenchant film about race relations ever in American cinema, right? And this was, you know, absolutely true. Those who only remember uh, it from their childhood or only remember the Simpsons parody of it or whatever, need to go back and watch it as a clear-eyed yep. adult. It's a brilliant yep. piece of social commentary. But also, it was the first science fiction film to have as its lead actor and as its lead actress people who had already won Academy Awards. Charlton Heston, who had won the Academy Award for Ben-Hur, and um, Kim Hunter, who plays Dr. Zero, the female lead in the film, mm -hmm. who had won the Academy Award for A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, the cinematographer, Lalo Schifrin, it's like Ansel Adams made movies. The cinematography in that film is gorgeous. And of course, he was an Academy Award winner. Uh, Michael Wilson, uh, who had been blacklisted and didn't get to get his Academy Awards until they were retroactively given in his name. Actually, he had already won an Academy Award before he got blacklisted and then subsequently got uh, given again. Uh, he was the one who actually wrote the screenplay for Bridge on the River Kwai, but wasn't able to take a credit for it. He was blacklisted and so forth. Rod Serling, you know, the principal, the most re well-regarded scriptwriter in the science fiction genre. He and Wilson wrote the script. Just the whole team that came together for that was, you know, the first really across the board A-listers. Uh, it wasn't the first, it was the score, that you know, I think the first Oscar nomination for Jerry Goldsmith, who wrote the brilliant score. John Chambers won a special Oscar for the creative makeup design. This was really the film, even more than 2001, A Space Odyssey, that said to the world that across the board, science fiction can be first rate. Because you can't say for the acting in 2001, and although the soundtrack is brilliant, 
it was also public domain, right? Yeah, right most yeah. it's you yeah, know, it's yeah, classic yeah. Uh, music, yeah. right? Yeah. This was short. It's you could have brilliantly innovative score. You could have brilliantly innovative um, script. You could have great acting. You could have all of that. So the idea that science fiction aspirationally should be social comment, should be high quality, and should uh, just uh, knock your socks off and stick with you forever. You know, for the 50th anniversary, you know, I, I'm a well enough to do person, but even I had to think twice, but only twice before I said, <laughs> hell yeah, I'm going to fly to Los Angeles yeah. just to watch a movie. <laughs> and went to see the 50th anniversary screening at the USC Film School, where, um, of course, the cast is mostly dead, but the surviving um, makeup effects people, Bill Krieber, who was the brilliant art director for the film was there I, to, to meet these people. It was absolutely worth flying to Los Angeles for 48 hours just to see the 50th anniversary screening of that film with those people. Yeah, the cinematography of that movie is amazing. As I say, if Ansel Adams was a motion picture photographer, it's, it's so stunning. beautiful. Do you know where they filmed it? Well, they filmed it in various places. Lake Powell, they filmed yeah. it in uh, Grand Canyon, Arizona. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. The filming location. And of course, a lot of it was at the Fox Ranch, which is now part of Malibu State Park in uh, suburban Los Angeles. But yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So given your answer at uh, the beginning of the, this podcast, how would you say it uh, informed your work? Did it in inspire you to write science fiction? It did. Just- absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, and I'll tell you the truth. I don't often tell this story, but I was having dinner just me and him with Tom Doherty. We went to, I think, Shula's, a really great steakhouse in the States. He was buying. He's a rich man. Why not? And it was just the two of us. We were at a convention. And he said, you know, I've been looking at uh, these other publishers like, uh, you know, Bantam. Uh, Del Rey has the, um, at that time, I guess, or Pocket had the Star Trek license. Del Rey has the Star Wars license. We tried with the Columbo license. They didn't really take off, but I've been looking around and thinking, we got to get more into licensed fiction. He said, so Rob, you know, you're one of our favorite authors here at Tor. Is there a property that I might acquire the license to that you would be willing to write? And I said, well, you know, I've turned down doing all kinds of license work, but if you got the license to classic Planet of the Apes, I would do it. And he said, oh, that's so hmm. depressing. And I said, well, it is the first film is depressing. And then the second is even worse. And yeah, let's get started on the third. And then, of course, the parents and the child apparently get murdered at the end of the fourth. But the fifth, in this very final scene, has this little bit of twig of hoping for a better future. And that's where I take the jumping off point. And Tom said, nobody remembers the fifth, let alone the second. Yeah. I remember the second. Yeah. Unrelentingly bleak series. It's just, I don't know. And then he said, you know, but if you want to do something like that, that isn't actually trespassing on the license, well, we'd certainly be interested in that. I turned around and wrote mm-hmm. hominids, humans, and hybrids. Yeah. A wow. parallel. You know what? That's my favorite series you wrote, Hominids. Well, thank I you. love that series thank so you. much. A parallel Earth where the Neanderthals survived the present it's... day, and we did not in a portal that opens up between. So clearly, I was dealing with another, you know, humans in masks, which yeah. is what 
Planet of the Apes literally dealt with, and I figuratively dealt with, and uh, all kinds of social commentary in Hominids, Humans, and Hybrids. And, you know, I'd had a bunch of Hugo nominations under my belt at that point. I'd lost track, but Terminal Experiment was nominated, Frameshift was nominated, Factoring Humanity was nominated. Uh, trying to think uh, what, if anything else. Uh, and I'd already won the Nebula Award, but I hadn't won the Hugo yet. Yeah. I got me yeah. the Hugo. And then the next year got me a nomination for the next, uh, for the Hugo for the second book. And the books still remain, you know, they're 21 years since the first one came out now, amongst my most successful. And unlike in the Planet of the Apes franchise, where dogs are dead as of the fourth film and would yeah. never interrupt our recording with a background barking, uh, in my series, Ponter Bodet has, the Neanderthal, has a dog. But in one of the things you can do in a book that you can't do in a movie is he talks about his dog, plays with his dog. And then when the dog is first seen by uh, regular homo sapiens, she stops dead in her tracks and says, oh my effing God, there's a wolf in the room. Yeah. (laughs) Because the Neanderthals never did this ridiculous domestication we've done, which is actually something I'm writing about now in my current novel, Domesticus. You know, I love dogs. I don't have a dog. I have a dog allergy. Unfortunately, my dad had a severe one. We couldn't have one. I love dogs. But what we've done to dogs is cruel. You know, that pugs have all oh, kinds yeah. of respiratory difficulties. Hip dysplasia is common in many breeds of dogs uh, because of the yeah. way we've bred them for body forms and structures that are simply maladaptive but look nice in dog shows. Uh, almost all dog breeds are less than 150 years old. We've done this quite, quite recently. The Chihuahua, the Dachshund, all these things that we created uh, because we could, and now we want to do genetic engineering on human beings because we obviously have been so good and compassionate in what we did it to our best friends. <laughs> I love how you've made it so I cannot edit my dog. I like to, you know, well, this is, you all remember this, Joe, from your training in radio and television arts. And I just saw a version of this, by the way, on uh, Late Show, Stephen Colbert. Uh, Martin Scorsese came out and you could see that his index finger was in a splint. And so the first thing Colbert's, and he was trying to hide it, Scorsese, first thing Colbert's is, well, elephant in the room, let's talk about what happened to your finger. Because you address... The background noise. Yeah. If you have a cold and you yeah. can't articulate properly, you say, excuse me, listeners, I'm sorry. I know I sound rough today. Well, is the reason. you address it rather than pretend it's not there because that is dishonoring your listener or your viewer thinking, oh, we can just, you know, razzle dazzle you and, you know, uh, and have you not notice that there's a, a, a cast on the finger or that a dog barked in the background. You address it, make a joke of it and you move on. Context is king, man. I mean, that that's it's important. Yeah. yeah. And this is a very open and honest podcast. And, and now I will just say that that was my Sheltie, uh, Wendy. So Wendy the dog, she gets her credit now. She can join WAG AFTRA instead of SAG AFTRA. WAG is a, a little tail joke. There, thereby hangs a tail. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, brother. You don't have kids because these are like quality dad jokes. They're quality dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. <that's right. laughs> yeah. So, okay, so Planet of the Apes. I, I want to go back to something you were talking about uh, earlier, actually, the, the beginning of your career, that you had, your last job was when you were 23, and then you became a full-time writer. Was there any point back then that you were afraid that you'd made the wrong choice? Uh, I, so this was the greatest epiphany 
I ever had in my life. And I was lucky enough to have it uh, when I was 19. Now, you and I, Joe, went up through the school system here in Ontario. Back in the day, we had pretty well unique in North America, a grade 13. So you were finishing your high school education, not at 18, but at 19. Yeah, me and, too. And uh, you too. And um, I uh, had intended to pursue an academic career. Both my parents were academics, but I'd always at the back of my mind, I'd like to write. And I made an 11th hour decision that I was going to, even though I'd already been accepted to study paleontology, the academic area that interested me at the University of Toronto, and indeed had a room in residence there. And even though I'd also been accepted to study geology at uh, University of Waterloo, I made a very 11th hour decision to go to Ryerson and study. I wanted to study, be a writer. And because it was an 11th hour decision or a grade 13 decision, I didn't have the prerequisite of grade 13 history to do journalism at Ryerson, uh, which was the top journalism program, certainly in Toronto and arguably in Canada, but the top mm. broadcasting program in Canada then and now, the School for Radio and Television Arts at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, go, I don't know what, the, have you seen a new mascot of the university? I don't know what the hell that thing is. Uh, it's uh, some <laughs> is kind of the ram anymore. It's some kind of hideous foul. But we used to have a ram, as you may recall. Uh, yeah, anyway, yeah. so go Eggy, uh, but he's gone. In any event, yeah. um, I made this decision because I'd had this thing, an epiphany when I was 19, that I wanted to live my life by minimizing deathbed regrets. And I said hmm. to myself, I would regret going through a safe, comfortable career. Now, it's not really true anymore for academics, but it was at the time the template that I'd seen, which is my father's template, which is, you know, you work hard, you get good marks, you get into a, a good school, you go to a better school or a good school for graduate work. He was an economist. He went to the University of Chicago, which was the top economics school in the Western world at the time, uh, arguably still is, did his uh, master's there, PhD there, associate professor, assistant professor, full professor, dean, professor emeritus, you're set for life. Tenure along the way where you cannot lose your job except for the most egregious of circumstances. You know, it's, that was the safe path. And when I said to my dad, throwing it all out, dad, I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to be a writer. And he said, oh, now he was a statistician by profession, a statistical economist by profession. So back in the day, he went to the mainframe at U of T and got a printout from uh, StatsCan of the average income for the last 20 years of writers in Canada. And he just left them, tracked a few people <laughs> at my place at the breakfast table. And that's all uh, he ever said about it. Never. But I said, fully informed, Dad, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so was I scared? No, because I, I'd realized, you know, your 20s is a gift. You can fail in your 20s. I look at ironically, um, so many of my friends whose first marriages failed in their 20s, whose uh, first choice of career turned out to be completely wrong, and they made a, a, a course correction sometime in their 20s. So no, I was totally prepared. And by the time I was 30, I had sold my, my first novel. It came out when I was 30. I'd sold it, I think, when I was 29. And um, I was you know, making a decent living writing nonfiction. And so, no, there was never any panic in the process, except rejecting the notion that I was going to allow my life to be a safe life. 
you know, um, nobody wants to die immediately. But were I to be told that today was my last day on earth, I could say in all honesty and sincerity that I lived in the best place in the entire world, the best time in all of history, and already at 63, longer than 90% of all the human beings who ever went before me. I hit the jackpot. I'm content with what my life was. Yeah. Yeah. You hit the mega jackpot, I would say, because <laughs> yeah, because we hit the jackpot in the same way, but you kind of, yeah, ramped it up a little bit. Yeah. You but, ramped uh, yeah. it up. And it's, it's your own work though, too. So yeah. it's not just yeah. luck. It's effort plus Oh luck. yeah. Amps, I'm a hardworking yeah. guy. Yeah. You're a hardworking guy. No, no, a number of people have said, you know, the hardest working man in science fiction or hardest <laughs> working person. Maybe, maybe not, but uh, I absolutely, I, but I never, never, never discount the luck. And a thoughtful I know guy. work just as hard as yeah. I do and are just yeah. as or more talented than I am who just never got some of those lucky breaks. Well, yeah. and Mark makes a good point too that you're a, that you're a thoughtful guy and, uh, you know, and an affable guy. I mean, I've known you now for a, a long time. And one of the things that you've mentioned to me early, early on was uh, the concept of paying it forward to other writers. Yes. yes. Uh, Robert A. Heinlein uh, really articulated that early on. But it was, you know, he said simply when he'd helped a younger writer, uh, the younger writer said to him, how can I repay you? And he said, you can't. There's not a blessed thing you could possibly do for me. <laughs> so turn around. And when you're where I am or partway here, help the next guy along in line. That's all I ask. And what a great field I went into. Uh, we have most writers in the field have taken that to heart. There are a few people who are stupid enough, including a couple here in Canada, sadly, who are stupid enough to believe that other writers are their competition instead of their colleagues mm -hmm. and uh, begrudge and take cheap shots at those who have been lucky this particular week or this particular year. But by and large, it's a field where I recognize that I can't write your books, Joe, or yours, Mark. You can't write mine. We're yeah. artists. We're not vying for... And it's an art that can expand or contract, particularly in today's uh, environment of hybrid and or self-publishing, to take as many talented practitioners as are committed to the craft. So it's not like, oh, he got a book contract, therefore I did not. He... You know, yes, it's true of the year I won the Hugo, Kim Stanley Robinson and David Brin, one of your previous guests, for example, did not. They were uh, defeated. But I'll, that brings a point. You've had David on this show. Yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. Oh. Great friend of mine. As it happened, David and I were sitting in adjacent chairs at the Hugo Awards ceremony. Of course, they have the potential winners down front so that there's no, you know, uh, how, you know delay of whoever's no involved. vaulting. So I get my, you know, they're announcing, you know, the finalists are and these kiln people uh, by David Brin, the Hamid is by Robert J. Sawyer, the others, Kim Stanley Robinson's ear of rice and salt uh, and so forth. And they called my name and David was just grinning from ear to ear, reached over, clasped my hands. Let me be the first to congratulate mm. you. Right. That's the spirit of this field. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and uh, I, I've encountered that generosity from so many writers who both are senior to me and now that I'm fairly much a eminence grease in the field myself 
at always pay forward, pay forward, pay forward. Yeah. Now I, I wanted to ask you as well about um, you've had great good fortune, uh, obviously worked hard for it in, in your career. And, and you mentioned having, you know, lived at one of the best possible times and, and perhaps that may apply to, to the publishing epic that you worked in as well. Cause what do you think of the state of publishing now? You said worked in past tense, which is very interesting. <laughs> this is January 2024 as we're talking. So in December of 2022, in other words, just over a year ago, Christmas time, I was talking to my great friend and colleague and one who had been enormously paying it forward and helpful to me early on, Spider Robinson. Mm-hmm. Oh, and wow. Spider said, you know what, pal, to me, we got in at the right time. We made out like bandits and we're getting out at the right time. Hmm. Because that period during which you could make comfortable upper middle class living, just writing science fiction, existed from sometime 1950 or so. Pulp writers, very few of them. I mean, there were some incredibly prolific ones uh, who made uh, a living, but most were just uh, scrambling to just make rent. But starting around 1950 with the advent uh, of hardcover and and then paperback publishing of science fiction things so that uh, it wasn't just you would get your quarter cent a word uh, for the magazine publication. That was it. You could write a novel and actually get a decent amount of money. Uh, through to well, five years ago, or maybe even uh, 10 years ago, uh, where it all started to fall apart, you could make uh, a really decent living doing this. Every writer I know has either seen their advances drop. Larry Niven talks about this quite candidly, one of the great writers, and again, a friend and uh, a mentor of mine who is now, of course, a friend of mine. uh, I always like to see Larry. Or just the publishing industry, of course, is, you know, for the same advance that they paid 20 years ago in the same dollar figure, not adjusted for inflation, right? The advance hasn't changed. A friend of mine, a very good American writer, uh, told me, uh, you know, that he hadn't had an increase in his advances from, I'll say the name, Ace Science Fiction, the big American publishing house, 15 years, 15, which meant that in essence, his advances had dropped by more than half in that time. And also in that time, Ace and the others, Ace being part of Penguin Random House, the other big five said, you know what, we, we've got your print rights in North America. We want them worldwide in English at least, and hopefully worldwide in all languages. Uh, we want your ebook rights. That's turning out to be lucrative. We're going to poison the market by overpricing your ebooks and make sure you never make a damn cent off them. And if you do, give you only 17.5% of what the consumer pays for the ebook, while we take three <laughs> times that amount for having pressed the upload button. Damn oh, you know, audiobook rights, they used to be uh, yours. No, now they're ours too. No increase in advances. So, um, the state is horrific. And we haven't talked very much at all about one of the things I read a lot about in my science fiction was artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine, Lazarus Chernick, was just <laughs> posting on my Facebook wall yesterday, the day before, ironically, in a comment aimed at David Brin, uh, where David is participating in a conversation that, David, <laughs> you're out of touch. You don't understand that my whole reason to live as a creative individual has been destroyed these last 18 months by generative AI art. Uh, I made my living to whatever degree I made a living as a science fiction artist. And now all you have to do is say a few prompts 
into DALI or one of the other generative engines and get work that is as good as, in the eyes of the public at least, that created by an artist who was bleeding his heart and soul onto the canvas. And we aren't quite there yet where they can produce, where generative AI, chat, GDP, and so forth. Not yet, no. Can produce a novel that's as good as mine. But they can certainly produce one that's an incredible imitation of my style. Hmm. And within, you know, Moore's Law, computing power doubles every 18 months. Okay, when it was introduced 18 months ago, it was kind of a joke. And now it's pretty darn good. And 18 months from now, it's going to be better than me. And why would, you know... I have, I, I like to dazzle, as I say. You don't know what you're going to get with a Rob Sawyer novel. I like to say I'm the Forrest Gump box of chocolates <laughs> of, uh, of science fiction. That isn't everybody's taste. You can say to chat GPT today, you won't get a very good version. 18 months or 36 months from now, you've got a perfect version. I want a Rob Sawyer novel. That is, I like his politics. I really enjoy all the creative wordplay. I don't like it when he bashes the United States, even though he's a Canada-U.S. Uh, dual citizen and is just doing his civic duty to be one of the unelected legislators that the poets, meaning writers in general, are in our cultural landscape. Uh, and I wish, though, that he had a lot more graphic sex. Write me that novel and have it, you know, he did this series about Neanderthals in a parallel world. I want it to be not Neanderthals. I want it to be instead that uh, bears. Oh, dear. Oh boy. Oh boy. I think you might have a bestseller on your hands. Got, and you're the only person in the world who wants that book. So you talked earlier, you asked, do I do it to dazzle? The only way you can dazzle is if you have a large audience. Yeah. And we're leaving the era of popular or mass market fiction and moving towards the era of bespoke custom made art that is perfect for you but is of no interest to anybody else. Mm, wow. That's the death of the arts being the signature of civilization. Wow. You want to talk about uh, fragmentation of market. And your post-apocalyptic uh, scenario. There you are, Mark. <laughs> oh, my God. I just, it's so depressing. It's so depressing. It is. And as I said in the conversation that brought David Brennan into it and then my friend Lazarus, is that, you know, Science fiction writers, we've been warning the world for 70 plus years about AI. Yeah. And then big business just said, hey, we're going to do it anyways, with no government oversight. And then when they did it, we all said, oh, what are you going to do? I've done it. So we're <laughs> in a position now where, ironically, there's a meme going around right now that maybe the Swifties that saved the world, the yeah. Taylor Swift oh, yeah. fans who are so incensed about the deep fake, hardcore fake images of her that emerged last week, uh, that they may finally be forcing the government yeah. to do some regulation. But certainly the artists have uh, been unable to say, come on, why did you have to let the genie out of the bottle? This is the only reason we live for. And you're saying, eh, you know, well, it's as replaceable as the elevator operator of 80 years ago was replaceable by... Uh, just user-generated content. The user presses the button. Yeah, I would argue that it's not just us as the creators that are impacted by this, but our readers, our cons the consumers of all of this are also impacted by this because it's fundamentally empty. Yes. Because you don't learn something new. 
if you just say, I would like to see this specific thing, you're never going to learn some from that. This is social media writ large, right? Everybody has found their silo. Everybody has found their echo chamber where their already existing beliefs are reinforced with constant dopamine hits of like, 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 like. And we end up now with a world that is more polarized than ever. Nobody is changing their opinion. The idea that this whole rigmarole they're going into the United States right now that is supposedly to convince swing voters to change their mind from Trump to uh, Biden or vice versa, there are no swing voters. Almost to a person in the United States or here in Canada or everywhere else, people are already made up their minds and they're convinced they're right because the only information they receive reinforces their already uh, entrenched opinions. Yeah. Hmm. The death of the traditional media, the CBC, the mother corp, you know, Pierre Poliver talks about defunding it, but everybody has, recognizes that the impact, that there is no national voice, that there is no Knowlton Nash or Peter Mansbridge. Uh, there's no Peter Zowski anymore. There's no, um, uh, who, who is that? guy on cross-country checkup. Um, uh, Rex Murphy? or no, Rex they, Murphy, yeah. for all his curmudgeonly uh, <laughs> uh, uh, insanity. That's a good thing. There's, there's, <laughs> there are no central voices anymore. They're just an arrangement of fringe voices, right? There's no nothing like Morningside that draws the country together anymore. Nothing even remotely like that. Nothing like we all listen to Uncle Knowlton or if you were a CTV guy to Uncle Lloyd. There's nothing. There's no Walter Cronkite in the United States. There's no trusted journalistic voice anywhere. You can't hold up the Globe and Mail or the Grey Lady itself, the New York Times, and say that these are unbiased sources of dispassionately collected facts presented without an agenda to better inform the electorate so they can choose who they want to vote for. Hmm. That is gone, gone, gone. All right. Well, then that means I got something here, though, Joe. That means you have homework, Rob. I have You've homework. Got to, you have homework. You, I, so do I. And so does I Joe. never did my homework in high school. We have to. Class. Okay, but that's this is the challenge, right? As science fiction writers, we're probably the best place people to think about what comes next? What p- replaces that old model? Right. But this was my point at the beginning of my screed. We tried to save you from AI. We tried to save <laughs> you from book burning and censorship. We tried to save you from uh, the limitation of uh, rights based on gender orientation, sexual preference, gender at birth. We tried to uh, save you from environmental degradation. We tried to save you from the population explosion. We tried, we tried, we tried, and nobody listened. So to say to me, now here's your agenda, Rob. You go and come up with the perfect solution and be ignored again. I say, nope, been there. As Spider said, we're getting out at the right time. Been there, done that. Did my bit, quite literally, for queen and country and got inducted into the Order of Canada for it. But it doesn't mean that I or anybody else, not George Orwell, not Aldous Huxley, not Ray Bradbury, not Margaret Atwood, not a one of the science fiction writers who devoted their career to sounding the warning bells, and giving the possible remedies to the social ills was ever heeded. That is the epitaph, not just of science fiction, but of our culture and our species. 
So is there any hope? You know, when they opened Pandora's box, the last thing that came out in the myth is hope. And you can't put that back in the box either. I have my fingers crossed that I'm going to be political. The United States is not going to repeat the mistake of electing Donald Trump. It astonishes me. I say, okay, you made a big mistake once. Okay, I learned from your lesson. Nobody learned. He is the presumptive nominee and the front runner in polling to be the most powerful man in the world again. I was a huge fan of Greta Thunberg, but we got the most recent COP summit in Dubai instead. I want to believe, you know, uh, this was my problem with the X-Files is David Duchovny wanted to believe all that crap was true. Uh, all that extra right. sense of perception and magical stuff that we discredited at the beginning of this interview. I am holding out hope, but every time something ridiculously bad happens, you know, the COVID crisis, great. We learned how to deal with pandemics uh, when we know how to, we've got vaccines, we've got masks, no problem. This will be over lickety split. Oh, People won't take the vaccines. They think that a billionaire is putting a chip in their blood. Oh, we're not going to wear masks because it's inconvenient or uncomfortable. As somebody said, tell that to the surgeon who spent nine hours wearing a mask to put in my artificial hip for me, that it was an inconvenience and he really didn't need to wear that mask and he could just breathe his germs into my gaping flesh wound. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, every time we do something ridiculous, and right now, as we talk, for the first time in human history, not one but two separate nuclear powers are engaged in shooting wars, Israel yeah. and Russia, right? Am I supposed to say, oh, where's the hope in that? We're hoping that neither Putin or Netanyahu are going to decide, screw this, I'm going down with a bang. We're hoping that maybe they're saner than Kim Jong-un and just launched more uh, ICBMs today. Uh, we're hoping that despite the fact that uh, SCOTUS was allowed the Supreme Court of the United States to install a Texas oil man instead of an environmentalist 24 years ago, that it's still not too late to uh, prevent catastrophic global environmental change, even while Ontario and, and British Columbia and Hawaii and, uh, and uh, California are burning to the ground. Eh, hope. You know, it's a diamond in the Smithsonian. <laughs> I'm starting to regret my post-apocalyptic choice at the beginning of this Yeah, I would change my answer. I want to say post-apocalyptic. <laughs> That's the only way to go, clearly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, gee, this has been a fantastic conversation. My pleasure. Always, Joe. Mark, my pleasure. Yeah, love to see you again. Thank you very much. Live long, let us hope, and prosper all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Creative is produced by Mark Rayner and Joe Mahoney. Technical production and music by Joe Mahoney. Web design by Mark Rayner. Show notes and all episodes are available at recreative.ca. That's re-creative.ca. 
drop us a line at joemahoney at donovanstreetpress.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.